Good morning. My name is Abby Benet, for those of you who have not met me, and um, I look forward to meeting you if I haven't and having that pleasure. My husband Doug and I work in Zambia teaching pastors and leaders who cannot get to biblical and theological education because they're in remote places. And our dear colleague from Zambia, um, Pastor Percy Muleba is with us today and it's my honor to get to introduce him. Um, our relationship with Center Church goes back 20 years now, I can't believe it, a little over 20 years, when Doug and I came to town for him to plant a new Presbyterian church in Mooresville with the help of several Presbyterian churches, including Center. Um, and you all became friends to us, Cindy and Robert, welcomed us as ministry colleagues and we began a friendship that at that time and we are so grateful for this church when the lord introduced us to percy um, 12 years ago doug met him and then i a couple of years later um, we came over time to the conclusion that god was leading us um, out of Doug's parish work and my work as a chaplain up at Bering Springs to work more in Zambia with Pastor Percy. And so even though he's 20 years younger than we are, um, he's wise beyond his years and he's our director when we're in Zambia and Namibia and occasionally South Africa. I want to tell you that his heart for his colleagues, for those trying to lead <coughs> churches in the bush in Zambia and then on into Namibia and all really of Southern Africa now. His heart for those folks is so big and it's contagious. Um, he asked Doug to begin teaching with him as Doug was visiting and bringing mission teams from our church um, over the years and then Percy who was visiting his mom in town felt called to stay and help um, the largest church there in Wandi Village as youth pastor. But youth are up to 36 years old in Zambia. So you can see that much of the leadership, the young leadership of the church, um, was under his care. In addition, he was responsible for 11 bush churches outside of Wandi, some of them quite long distances away. The pastor neither he nor the other pastor could get there often. And so elders were leading those churches who had no biblical training, no theological training. And then Percy began to get to know other colleagues in other parts of Western province, Zambia, um, who were in the same situation. And his heart for them, bringing them first to Mwandi village, they camped for five months caught fish in the afternoons, took classes in the mornings. Percy had had some mission training already, and so he was leading those classes. And when he asked Doug to join him, to tell you the truth, it scared me, because I saw Doug light up. And when he came home and he was preaching, he was weeping in the pulpit often, which had not been the case in the previous 27 years. So I knew the Lord was stirring in him. I refused to go at first. I had my ministry right here in North Carolina. I was happy with that. But when I did go, um, I also caught the vision from Percy 
for training. And so we have the privilege of working with him, the mission organization we've been a part of for the last six years. Um, with your help, you were our first supporting church when we felt called into full-time missions. So I thank you for that and for your friendship. But when we um, joined Global Training Network, um, we had found colleagues that were doing the same things. We're in 80 countries now. There's 150 of us doing the same kinds of training where people cannot reach good training and build healthy churches. And so um, they asked Percy two years ago to be the first indigenous leader, the first non-American citizen to be senior staff at Global Training Network. So we're pretty proud of him. He's become like our son, even though he's the one who tells us what to do. <laughs> so we would be nowhere without Pastor Percy Muleba. And he's been to seminary now since we met him, and um, he's developing not only his gifts in theology and biblical training, but he's also a gifted worship leader. And he's teaching biblical worship on our team as we go throughout Western Province and the rest of um, the areas that we're going to in Namibia. And so he has a wife, a beautiful wife named Mienda, and three beautiful daughters who are very smart. Um, Natasha is at university, and then Tabo and Sala are still at home. They're 10 and 5, and um, they are anxiously counting the days till he leaves tonight. He's been here six weeks, so I thank them from afar for giving him up for that long. Without further ado, here is Pastor Percy Muleba. Chuang. That would mean uh, good morning, and I think at the moment it will be uh, towards afternoon. Uh, thank you, Abby. That was uh, very uh, touching and humbling. Uh, Abby is my mother. I cannot find a better way of trying to describe her. And you can add to the list. Doug uh, is my father, is, is my mentor. And you are my family. I am so humbled this morning. Something happened to me in the morning service that shifted my thoughts. Uh, you heard I'm married to one wife. <laughs> I have three daughters and we trained in Southern Africa. Uh, we moved from 100 colleagues, churches, to 200 as of last year and now. And uh, we were able to train uh, just last year, myself, Abby and Doug, and the volunteers were able to train 3,000 plus. And I'm just being polite when I, pick you, I give you those figures. And uh, 100 churches were planted. And uh, life is not easy. As we train these pastors to uh, be not only mission-minded, but be mission-active, which is our mission to raise, train, and equip a mission-minded generation. Uh, we're tapping into developing local indigenous missionaries because sometimes they are in places that we call ourselves 
the people living there are their neighbors. So empowering someone in that area. And we are so humbled and glad that the Lord has opened another door for us for East Africa. Uh, we'll be training the Muslims as we also beginning to train the Bushmen. For those who watch, the gods must be crazy. God has privileged, has invited us, is drawing us into, into that. And then East Africa to train with uh, my colleague for years now. He says, would you bring the team here? And so we really appreciate prayers in those lines. Uh, I love to sing. I'm going to be singing very soon. And I want to say something that is a shift in my spirit as I go back home. Uh, this year will be 20 years that uh, the Lord healed me. I was uh, at a point where the doctor said I would not make it. And they said he would die. And I prayed a very simple prayer. If I die, Lord, let me die in you. But if I live, I'll live to save you. I used to know about God. And my relationship began from that day. I don't know where you are and what's going on, but without Jesus, there's no life. And it is this Jesus, 20 years ago today, that has given me you. Your prayers keep us going. And your support, you're holding on the rope. Like Paul needed someone to hold the rope for him without tiring and continuously doing that from my heart of hearts. And on behalf of my family and all the pastors in those villages that are struggling, some on the verge of giving up, but then the Lord's grace just keeps holding us. I want to say thank you. Thank you so much for just giving us a place we can go home. I long to be here all the time I come here. I want to sing a song. It's a very... Uh, uh, it has, it has a thought within a thought. Uh, uh, the songwriter simply was trying to communicate a thought, uh, which is uh, uh, the reason why I worship him, why I do what I do, is because God is very faithful. He's a good God. And because of his goodness, because of his faithfulness, because of his love, I live my life searching for him. He found us. I was searching for him. Because in this world, there's a tendency of moving away from him because of a number of distractions. So the song brings a thought within a thought. As he has found us, are we in a place to search scriptures 
so we can find him and understand him and grow in him. The song is in Beba. Let's just have a short worship moment. scriptures would you reveal Jesus to us that we may see him face to face and be shifted in our perspective transformed in our disposition our intentions and our motivations may we be Lord Jesus who you said we are we pray in your name and God's people said amen Thank you, Percy and Abby. Well, some weeks ago when Robert invited me to preach this Sunday and next, he told me he'd been working through the Beatitudes. And um, <clears throat> I understand that is what he's been doing. And so he said, you can preach on anything after the Beatitudes. So I'm preaching on the salt and light passage from Matthew chapter 5. But before we read that, <clears throat> I want to, by way of introduction, remind us about the Beatitudes because, would you please excuse me, I'm turning off my microphone. <clears throat> Coronavirus? No. Okay. <laughs> um, before we read 
the scripture today, we need to make sure we have a, a sense of the Beatitudes, all right? So uh, here's the reality that as we approach the Beatitudes, uh, you know what I mean, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, etc. those. That we have to be very careful and recognize uh, that the Beatitudes are not a list of rules that Christians should follow, or non-Christians for that matter, that gain us access to God. I've heard this a lot. I've heard it on uh, secular talk shows sometimes. A caller might say, I think that if we could all just agree that we could behave the way Jesus said we should in the Beatitudes, that the world would be a better place. Have you ever heard that? I mean, let's just all agree on the Beatitudes. And I'd love to do that, except when I read the Beatitudes, what I read is not, this is something simple we can all agree and go do, but rather, this is a mess here because this isn't me, right? How could I do that? I don't want to be a peacemaker. I want to slap around people I don't agree with. Are you with me? So uh, another approach sometimes to hear about the Beatitudes is, well, we're saved by grace, God's unmerited favor, and we get forgiven that way, but then to be thankful and to show our gratitude, we should pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps and behave this way. That way God will know we're really grateful. Uh, neither of those approaches, I don't believe, do justice to what's happening in the Beatitudes. Because what's happening in the Beatitudes is that Jesus is addressing his disciples. And what he's saying to his disciples is, I'm going to describe the ideal disciple to you. And this is who you are going to become because of me. It's not who you should be so that I will welcome you, it's who I will make you through my influence. Are you with me? The key is the word blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers. In the Bible, the word blessing or blessed is always connected to the presence of the living God. And the sequence biblically is this. God's presence comes and the consequence is the blessing. It is not we do something which brings God's presence and blessing. It's never that. God's presence comes and the blessing follows. And if you look through the motley characters of the Bible, you'll see that that's what's happening all the time, right? Murderers and rapists and all sorts of horrible people who are listed in the great annals of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So what Jesus is saying here is because of your interaction with me, because you've looked on my face, turn your eyes upon Jesus, you will become this. And in fact, he says, with regards to God, what will we be like? Humble, repentant, we'll be submissive, we'll be hungry for more of him. With regard to others, we'll be merciful, guileless, we'll be peace-seeking, we'll be willing to suffer, to make things right. And it's interesting that just before the last beatitude, he shifts from the third person to the second person. Blessed are the peacemakers. But in the final beatitude, he says, blessed are you. Blessed are you when you suffer because of me. Suddenly, he's saying to them, 
the ideal disciple has moved from theory to reality. Dr. Charles Tauber puts it like this. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, I have made you into something, now be it. I have made you into something, now be it. Now that's the background to the passage we're going to read today. And you'll notice that it's in the second person as well. Are you ready to read? Jesus said to his disciples, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus begins to describe who we are. And I want to call it as a description of us as missionary disciples. He says, because of me, this is who you are. And in that, these few short verses, he describes several things. First of all, he talks about the nature of our mission. He talks about salt and he talks about light, doesn't he? Now, in studying the whole salt-light thing, I came across so many possibilities. Salt is a preservative. So one writer said, Christians are the preservative of, of a decaying culture. And I just had this image of laying on top of like a rotting corpse and being the preservative. It wasn't very inspiring. And then someone else said, well, we're, the, we're, the, we're what brings the flavor out of the world. We're, we're the salt, like the steak. And it, the world is a happier, better place because we're around. And that's fine. I like that okay. But there is a, another possibility. And it makes more sense to me based on the general gospel of Matthew and based on Jesus. And it's this. There was a tradition in the first century when a, two people wanted to make a covenant, what we would call a contract. And in the agreement of the covenant, each would take a small bag of salt. Each would take a pinch out of their bag and place that pinch in the other person's bag. Then the salt would be mixed. And the covenant, once stated, would be concluded with words like this. When the day comes that I can get only my salt back out of your bag, the covenant will end. In other words, binding for life. It was a covenantal word. Covenant is a biblical word. It means that God has established the norms and the conditions for us having a relationship with him. It's a two-way relational dynamic. And I think it fits here. Jesus is saying, I have made you who you are. And you will be a living example of the new covenant to the world. And what was that new covenant? Well, it's in the, it's in the prophets. There will become a new covenant, Ezekiel and Jeremiah said. 
where I will write the law of God on people's hearts. I will change their dispositions, you see. They will obey me from within, not from without. And Jesus is saying, you, my disciples, those whom I have made peacemakers and searchers for righteousness and humble and hungry for God and willing to suffer for doing what's right, I will make you a living example of the world. This is the way I will display to the world what the new covenant, the new intimate relationship between God and people is. Then there's the light. And light is a great biblical word. It's connected to creation. It's connected to uh, the dispelling of evil. It's connected to color. It's connected to all sorts of wonderful things. But if you look in scripture, Jesus didn't just say, you are the light of the world. He also said what? I am the light of the world. Now, when did he say that? So when looked, did a little studying, and he said it in the Gospel of John. Does anybody remember the occasion of his saying, I am the light of the world? Well, it was at the Feast of Tabernacles. I'd like to call on Joe Mitchell now to give a brief exposition of the Feast of Tabernacles. No? Some other Sunday, perhaps? Yes, yes. The Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated annually, and it was a reminder of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness that the Israelite people experienced after being set free from slavery in Egypt. It was also a harvest festival. And the interesting thing about the Feast of Tabernacles is that on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, in the court of women in the temple, four 75 foot high, huge oil lamps, we'd call them searchlights, right? Would be lit. And interestingly, the wicks for the lamps were the priestly garments that had been worn that year for the exercise of the sacrificial offerings. And those lights were lit to announce that one day the Messiah would come, and because they were lit in the women's court, they illuminated the court of the Gentiles. And it was said on the Feast of Tabernacles, when the Messiah comes, the Gentiles will be gathered in. I believe when Jesus said, you are the light of the world, he was speaking about the harvest, the end time harvest of the Gentiles. So here's what he's saying. You are going to be living examples of my new covenant that I, through my presence, will rewrite your hearts so that you live your disposition, your perspective, your intentions, your motivations are different. And you are going to be the ones through whom I reap the end time harvest of the Gentiles. Because it was on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, after the lights had been lit, that Jesus looked around and announced in a loud voice, I am the light of the world. The one you have been lighting those for for hundreds of years is here. That's amazing, isn't it? I think it's awesome. Salt and light. New covenant. End time harvest. Wow, missionary disciples. The nature of our mission. Now what about the scope of our mission, number two? It's right here in this passage. Jesus uses three words. 
You are the salt of the, world, the earth, you are the light of the world, and no one lights a lamp in his house. Three words. The first one is earth. It's, in Greek, it's ger. And it means the physical planet. Right? The entire globe. Jesus says the scope of your mission is global. Now think about this. He's talking to a few fishermen in the middle of Israel. And he says, just to make things clear, you're going to be living examples of my new covenant. I'm going to bring the Gentiles to faith through you. And it's going to be a global reality. Wow. Every country. Every landmass, right? Every island. The second word he uses is world. Cosmos, from which we get cosmos or cosmology. It's a very different word than gare. Gare refers to the physical reality of the, wor the world. Cosmos refers to the cultural reality of the world. Jesus says not only will your mission be global, it will be transcultural. Every culture, which means you're going to have to cross out of your culture into those cultures, right? Somebody had to show up in Zambia. And it will be multicultural. The church will not be monolithic. Because it will ingather everyone, right? By the way, who here is a Gentile? Raise your hand if you're Gentile. Yet you notice that Jesus was right? I mean, we're it, right? We're being talked about in this passage. And Jesus is saying every culture, every people group, every race, every language, the scope of the mission that, you will, that I will carry out through you, ideal disciples that I've made you, is global and it's transcultural. What? Oh, about 30 years ago, out of Fuller Seminary, a very popular teaching came out called the Church Growth Movement. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of the Church Growth Movement. Um, it was a, a way to um, multiply churches in the United States. And it was promulgated on, on one of these key premises. And this was one of them. If you want to grow the church, the best way to grow the church is to do so by reaching people just like you. It's interesting. So if you're, if you're white, reach white people. If you're black, reach black people. And then it got narrower. If you're middle class white, reach middle class whites. If you're upper class blacks, reach upper. Everything was divided that way. Because why? Because people like to hang out with people like them. Well, we do like that, don't we? But that's not the vision that Jesus is giving, is it? Jesus' vision is global and transcultural. It is a shift in perspective. The third word that he uses is house. Right? No one puts a lamp in a house without putting it on a stand. The word is oikos. It really means the extended family. The place where extended families live, so to speak. Uh, in Percy's language, we say it's a clan. You know what Jesus is saying? I intend to transform your families through you. 
I read an article uh, recently about Jonathan Edwards. Any of you ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? He was the preacher through whom the first great awakening swept down the east coast of the United States. He was also a, a president of Princeton Seminary for about two months before he died of fever. Jonathan Edwards, if you look at his family line, it's unbelievable. Judges, and one vice president of the United States, and, and I mean, it, what? College presidents, and I mean, the list is amazing. And, and one guy did a study of Jonathan Edwards, and then he chose at random a criminal in the New York justice system at the same time, a, a well-known multi-repeater criminal, and looked at his family. One side, college presidents, doctors, lawyers, vice president of the United States, senators, preachers. The other line, thieves, robbers, 60, 70, served times in prison. Jesus doesn't want that. He wants that. He intends to transform the clan, your clan, my clan. So the mission scope isn't just global and transcultural, it's familial. And Jesus is saying, don't worry, it's going to begin at home too. Because once I've transformed you, your family's going to have to deal with that reality. When my parents became Christians, it freaked me out. I mean, we went to church, but none of us cared about God. My mother said we have to go. My father said your mother said we have to go, so we have to go. And I said, why do we have to go? And neither of them can answer the question. And it was so hopelessly boring to go to church. So one weekend they went to some church program and I woke up on Sunday morning, which was normally Tom and Jerry and Honey Buns. You remember Honey Buns? Oh, I loved Honey Buns. And I would get up and eat a Honey Bun and watch Tom and Jerry and think, oh God. I hope there's only four hymns today and not five. And, you know, and, uh, and I went, all of a sudden I hear my parents singing in the bedroom. Trust me, that was weird. <laughs> and I go, what the heck is going on? And I go back to the hall and look, and my mother, she's singing these songs to Jesus. We call them praise songs now, but nobody ever heard of them back then. And I stood in the hall, and my mother saw me, and she looked at it, and she smiled, and she said, Hi, we've met Jesus. And I said, That's nice. I'm never going to church again. That was our interaction. I mean, they were freaks, right? And yet, two years later, I became a follower of Jesus. Why? Because the covenant of grace and the ingathering of the Gentiles worked as I watched my parents' character be reshaped by Jesus. My father became a different man. I couldn't deny it. He treated me differently. He treated my mother differently. The atmosphere in our household was better. The quality of their friendships improved. I, what do you do with that? It's a global, transcultural, familial mission. Number three, Jesus says there's two dangers to our mission. The first is the danger of mixing our salt. He says if salt becomes unsalt, it's a problem. Well, salt can't become unsalt, right? Salt is salt. You can melt it, 
could, but it, well, in the first century, most of the salt in Jerusalem came from the marshes, a Dead Sea area, that kind of stuff. And it was mixed with gypsum, from which we do plaster. And so there was a separation process. What Jesus was saying was, if you're salt, please don't mix yourself with gypsum, because then you're only good for fertilizer. The trampling underfoot was a reference to animals tramping on it while they were plowing and planting. In other words, do you want to be a disciple or manure? Are you hearing me? You want to be a disciple. So, so don't mix. Another way to put it is this. You know what happens so often in our lives is we, we, we are not purely Jesus. We're, we're like Jesus as part of a recipe of life that we've created. So we make the recipe. We got, you know, we got a little sports here and a little money there. And we got a little love there and a little sex over here and a little Jesus there. Churches do this all the time. They throw Jesus into the mix, right? We got the ancestors here and the traditions there, and the ritual here, and we throw a little Jesus in. Jesus is saying, don't mix me. I'm the recipe giver, not the recipe ingredient. My first church, we had a, we had a, uh, a small group of people that were asking the question, do I want to become a Christian? And so I was leading that group, and a, a woman named Rachel Pearson was in the group. Now, Rachel wouldn't mind me telling this because she told the story all the time. Rachel was a gifted seamstress who had made the Miss Piggy costume in the Muppet movie that she wore when she dove into the pool. Do you remember that scene? I know Rachel who made that costume, so I am famous. So that's the way that works. And she sat there, and I asked this question. What brought you to her? What, why are you in this class? She said, well, my husband and I have been attending church for 20 years. But your church is different. And I said, well, what's different about our church? You know what she said? All you ever talk about is Jesus. I said, tell me more. Well, the other churches mentioned Jesus, but there was all this other stuff too. Social action, and programs, and this and that. And then we'd throw, you know, Jesus was there, but we didn't talk about him very much. But here, no matter what you're doing, you're talking about Jesus. I said, well, that's good. No mixing. And some weeks later, she prayed and said, to this Jesus, well, I want to follow you. And her life, her perspective, huh? her disposition, her intentions, her motivations begin to shift. Because that's what Jesus does in someone's life. So that's the first danger. We take Jesus and we throw him into the mix of our life as if he's a part of the ingredients that make life whole. Rather than the center of our lives. Secondly, Jesus said there's another danger, and that's that we hide our lights. We hide our lights. We cover them. Now, you can't stop being a light, but you can cover it, right? And um, we do it in a lot of ways and for a lot of reasons, right? We could maybe we're ashamed of it. Uh, maybe the culture has 
caused us to be afraid. I mean, people now talk about it. If I mention my faith at work, I'm reprimanded by my boss. You know, teachers aren't allowed to have a Bible on their desk anymore. There's a game being played. You can be a Christian, but you can't be a public Christian. Well, there's no such thing as a Christian who isn't a public Christian. Because we are to let our lights shine. So we're really in a mess here, right? If we are what Jesus says we are, if we are who Jesus says we are, then we will, by definition, be public. And churches who don't want to be public, we gather, we close the doors, we don't sing too loud. We just, and then we leave. No. No. The only Christian faith is a public Christian faith. I was thinking about this because I used to have a nightlight in the bathroom. Anybody have a nightlight? I did not used to need a light, nightlight in the bathroom when I was younger because I could see. But now at night, I don't want to kill myself. So I put a nightlight in, but it was too bright. And uh, I realized what was happening. And I was getting up in the middle of the night, my eyes dry out. I had to put a couple drops in, but the light was so bright that it woke me up. And then I'd lie back in bed. So I thought, I, I need the light, but not quite so bright. And so, being the innovative engineering type that I am, I thought, what could I do to mute the light? I thought, I've got those cool Band-Aids that are kind of translucent. So I clipped the end of a Band-Aid off and I taped it over the light. Perfect, I have this lovely, soft brown light now. I can go in the bathroom. I can... But I don't really wake up. That's what some of us are, muted. Oh, there's light, but not much. We don't want anybody to get wake, wake. We don't want to wake anybody up, you see. Because once they're awake, we have to deal with them. Mixing, hiding, it's a problem. And it's a problem for us as individuals, and it's a problem for churches as well. That's the dangers. And then, of course, Jesus ends. And he says, and let me remind you of the purpose. Why have I made you who you are? Well, ultimately, he says, it's so that when people see the new covenant life being lived out, when they experience the light of, of Jesus, they will come to me. And their lives will begin to bring glory to God the Father who deserves it. In other words, Jesus says, the reason I have made you who you are is so that through you I can make others who I want them to be. And they, like me, will glorify God the Father. In other words, I want the family to grow. I want it to get bigger. Are any of you firstborns? I'm a firstborn, okay. Do you remember what it felt like when the secondborn came along? It's very annoying. I was a firstborn for nine years. And we got my brother, I love my brother, but I began to think to myself, well, if there's, if I was one of us and I get 10 Christmas presents, there's now two of us. And I was old enough to know that my father's salary hadn't changed, so that I think would mean five Christmas presents each. In other words, my view of love and my view of family is that families divide, right? If you get too many people in a family, there's, no, there's not enough pie for everybody, right? 
You know, churches are like that. I mean, we want just enough that there's still a little bit left over at the end of the church supper. Do you know what I'm saying? Are you with me? So we said, well, now why is that? Did you know that the hardest plateau of church growth in terms of numbers there is to break in a local church is 150 people? 80% of churches in the U.S. have fewer than 200 members. Why? Because the 150 barrier, they call it, is when you reach about 60 family names. And the American culture, in the American culture, the average American can only remember 60 family names. Are you with me? And we don't want to feel uncomfortable. So if we go from 150 to 200, there'll be about 25 families. We don't know who these people are. I mean, they're in church with us. They're worshiping with us. They're eating our food. We know their face, but we don't know their name. We don't know how many kids they have. We don't know where they work. For God's sakes, they could be criminals for all we know. We certainly wouldn't recommend them to be an elder, right? And we laugh about these things, but this is life. You go, as one woman said to me, Pastor, don't you think our church is about the perfect size now? That was an elder. Perfect size. There were 110 of us. She was, re she was reaching her capacity. She said, I just love knowing everybody. I said, well, I guess the rest of the world needs to go to hell then. <laughs> I mean, in other words, we want to grow but not really grow, you see. We want Jesus, but not much of Jesus. We want light, but keep it dim. My eyes hurt. Let's not go crazy with this Jesus stuff. Are you with me? And so we, we gather. You know what the Presbyterians do? Yeah, here, this is a Presbyterian at a football game. Here's a Presbyterian when Jesus rises from the dead. Ooh. <laughs> Are you? Well, we don't want to get. If anybody thinks we're excited about Jesus, God only knows what it'll do to our reputation in the community, right? <laughs> Could be excited about anything except Jesus. Jesus wants us to grow, He wants a bigger family. He wants people that don't look like us to be part of the family. He's an adopter. He adopts people in, right? But you know what happens when you adopt people in? They don't have your DNA. But they're still your family. I'm going to leave you with three questions. I believe it's about lunchtime, isn't it? Question number one. Do we believe we are who Jesus says we are? Do we really, deep in our soul, believe that we are who Jesus says we are? Because if we do believe that, our perspective will be altered. And from that altered perspective comes a new disposition, and from a new disposition comes new intentions, and from new intentions comes different motivations. Do we believe we are who Jesus says we are? That's the first question. Here's the second one. Are we willing to let Jesus reap the end time harvest through us? Or would, he pref would we prefer he do it through someone else? 
Are we willing to let Jesus reap the end time harvest through us? Or would we prefer he do it with someone else? And here's the third question. What is our greatest vulnerability? Is it mixing or is it hiding? What is our greatest vulnerability? Is it mixing or is it hiding? Or maybe it's both. Let's pray. Jesus, you've declared that we are salt and we are light, those of us who are your disciples. You've declared that through your influence we are not the same people. You've declared that our perspective is different, our disposition will be changing, our motivations and intentions will shift. You've declared all these things and so we're asking you for the presence of the Holy Spirit that we may walk in what you declare to be true. We love you, Jesus, and God's people said, amen.